Good morning. How are you? Somebody's good. That's all right. That's all right. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 18 this morning. Ruth 3, 1 through 18. You can scan the QR code. Or we got some ushers coming down the aisles with Bibles. If you need one, slip a hand up. You can borrow one this morning. Take it if you need it. We've been in this series called A Christmas Story, uh, the book of Ruth. And this morning we're talking about how God guides us. Thanks for being here in person this morning and those joining us online in worship this morning. So while the book of Ruth presents to us a number of underlying themes, you've probably picked up on the last few weeks, it really is a story of providence. Some have defined providence as God weaving natural events supernaturally for his glory and for our good, which even just hearing those words kind of remind us of a scripture in the New Testament and the same principle found in Romans 8:28, which says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. A verse with such a promise that it has been called a soft pillow for tired hearts. And I wonder if you would just get that imagery in your mind for just a second, that idea of a soft pillow for tired heart. And let me just say it again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Providence, a combination of two Latin words, pro and video. And pro means beforehand, and video is where we get our word video, which means to see. So the word providence means to see beforehand, reminding us that God can see everything before it happens. Providence. That is why we say when speaking of God, he is omniscient. He knows what's going to happen in the future. He knows all things because he knows what's going to happen. He can cause and he can arrange things to happen through natural circumstances in order to fulfill this this perfect plan that he has for our lives. It is the polar opposite of a movement or a thought, this erroneous theological thought that's called open theism. It's completely the opposite, which suggests that God does not know the future that he doesn't have a clue what's gonna happen, and that he is in real time as much as we are in real time, and he's surprised as we are in life when things happen. But the idea of open theism, that God doesn't know the future, though it's heretical, unbiblical, for those who believe it, it's comforting to some, they say, because they can use it to lessen the pain and reduce the confusion of life by saying, well, even God didn't know that it was going to happen. He's as surprised as we are. But open theism removes God's providence. In his providence, he is proactive in arranging all things according to this perfect plan that he has. His providence is is even quite different than what we might say when we think of the word miracle. Because as an example, someone might say, did you see that, that sunrise this morning? It was miraculous when in fact the sunrise really isn't miraculous. It's not a miraculous event because it happens every single day. It's a natural event that God created and he set it into motion. So 
What is a miracle and how is it different than providence then? A miracle is when God intervenes natural law or interrupts natural law with a supernatural event, with something that does not naturally happen. For example, when Jesus walked on water, right? Or when the blind man was healed and he could see, or Jesus was raised from the grave. So here's what's amazing. With each passing day, you can look back and see God's providential hand in your life. You can see God's fingerprints as you begin to connect the dots. Well, if that didn't happen, well, well then that wouldn't have happened. And if that didn't happen, then I wouldn't have been in that place. And if I wasn't in that place, then I wouldn't have gone to that place. And I wouldn't have met that person who introduced me to that person. I encourage you at some point, um, even as we're studying the book of Ruth and we're talking about God's providence and as we see that unfold to, to maybe take some time and just look back over your life. Um, I've done a thing called uh, a life map where you just kind of, you kind of lay out all the things in your life and, and just look for the fingerprints or look for the providence of God in your life as you look backwards and see how God has been working in your life. Ruth chapter one, verse 22 says this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I wanna go backwards for a second before we go forward. So the barley harvest was late April, early May, and so you have the right timing in place. And it just so happens that there would be this law in Israel that if you are poor, you can glean in anybody's field. So consider the providence of God when culture back then or the law that was in place, when it meets this perfect timing, lending itself to rich landowners and poor people in the fields together, let alone the location at just the right time. So when you look close enough at the book of Ruth, you can see the providential hand of God over and over again, only because we get to see the whole story. We can sit down and, and look at the entire story at once. But what it teaches us is that just like Ruth's life was being written by God in the background, so is yours. So is mine. In the second chapter of Ruth in verse three, it says this. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. Speaking of Ruth. And then this phrase in Ruth chapter two, verse three, as it turned out, that's the phrase that's used in the NIV, as it turned out, providence. She was working in a field belonging to Boaz who was from the clan of Elimelech. So even in this story, before we get to where we're going today, we have culture, timing, location, all working together. God is in the background and his providence weaving them together. All of this to say, from our horizontal perspective, in other words, as we, as we look at people in our lives, this horizontal perspective on the daily themes, things can seem disorganized, confusing, disconnected, chaotic. And there's times when things just seem scary. That's our horizontal perspective. But vertically, 
They're providential. So it makes complete sense that, that as we're going throughout this life, we would say, I don't know what God's doing. And we would be right, because we don't. But nor does God owe us an answer. But what God invites us to do is to step out in faith, to trust his plan and recognize his provision. He invites us to live in the tension between what we might call this, this disconnected, this, this senseless life and the events of this life, our horizontal perspective, and live in the tension between our horizontal and the providential hand of God, the vertical. And the question is, will we allow ourselves to live there? Or will we trek through this life frustrated because so many things seem out of our control for which they are. Here we go, in God's providence. The first one, if you follow along, is to step out in faith. We're gonna start with verse one. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. In other words, what Naomi was saying, shouldn't I be a good mother-in-law and take care of you? One thing about Naomi is that she, she was a very practical person and she seems, gives us appearance that she seems very busy. So what she will discover and what we need to discover is that while she is very busy and, and trying to make sure that everything happens in order and in the right way, in a certain way, what we'll discover is that God is much busier making sure things happen his way behind the scenes. God already has his plan written down to the very details. And he's using this, this, in this story, this drive of Naomi to have his predetermined plan accomplished. So chapter three takes place after the harvest. And the grain has been collected and the fields have been gleaned. All of that is over. And then we come to verse two. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. This is Naomi continuing to tell Ruth. Or as other translations say, is he not our kinsman? That's a key word. Boaz was, was this wealthy farmer who lived in Bethlehem. He was known to be a man of his word, sensitive to those people that were in need. He showed kindness and compassion. But the introduction of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer is absolutely key to this entire book. In fact, you might say the book hinges on this word or the idea of this kinsman redeemer. So as widows, Naomi and Ruth, they're widows, could only look forward to difficult times in their life when Naomi heard the news about Boaz, her hope for a future was renewed. Typical of her character, she thought of Ruth first encouraging her to see if Boaz would take the responsibility of being a kinsman redeemer to her. What's a kinsman redeemer? It was a relative who volunteered to take the responsibility for extended family when a woman's husband died. The law made provision for the possibility of a widow marrying a brother of her dead husband. But remember, Naomi had no more sons. So in a case like that, the nearest relative to the deceased husband would become a kinsman redeemer by marrying this widow. 
They weren't required to, but, but could choose to. If by chance he chose not to marry the widow, the next nearest relative would be in line for that consideration. So if no one chose to help the widow, she would probably live this, her entire life in poverty, knowing that the inheritance was passed on to the son or, or the nearest male relative and not the wife. So if all of them chose not to marry her, she would just live this life of poverty. Why is this idea of a kinsman redeemer so important? Because it's a foreshadowing of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Hence, the Christmas story. Who came to this earth as a man to redeem us from our sin and hopelessness through his death on the cross. He purchased us by his blood and guarantees us an eternal inheritance for those who surrender their life and put their faith in him. If we keep going in verse two, she says this, tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Winnowing is a time when the chaff was separated from the wheat and a threshing floor was, was typically elevated and it was out in the field and oftentimes it was made out of bedrock. And, and, and so even when they collected all the barley and the wheat, they, all the servants would lay around this pile with their heads nearest and their legs would go out like a spoke on a wheel because they would protect their harvest. But she's saying, hey, there's this, there's this winnowing, this place, this threshing floor. And the reason that it was elevated is so that these afternoon winds would kind of, would blow through and they would take the wheat or the barley on a, what we would call a rake or like a pitchfork and they'd take it and they'd throw it up in the air and then all the chaff would be separated because the wind would blow, blow it loose and then the kernels would fall to the ground. But her instruction goes on. This is what she says, wash, put on some perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. So she's continuing to give her instruction. So Naomi is still at it. She sees this opportunity, and this time she takes on the role of matchmaker. This is probably where the show Married at First Sight came from. Who knows? But again, very practical advice. Wash up, douse yourself with some Chanel number five. It's the only one I could find. I, I didn't know how to pronounce all the others. Chanel number five. Lori says, well, my mom wears that. And I'm like, oh, so... Maybe it's been around a while, I don't know. And get dressed in your best clothes. I was talking to Lori, um, like I, I figured Lori and maybe Ruth are similar size. And so I said, well, what would she wear? <laughs> I don't, she pulled this out of her closet. And, and uh, I had to weave this in somewhere. Come on guys. Um, put on your best clothes. She says to Ruth, wash up, put on perfume, put on your best clothes. Keep in mind Naomi has come from a place of bitterness when she first arrived back to Bethlehem to a place where she now was praising God. Because you remember when she first arrived back, they came back from Moab and, and her and Ruth came and they were like, oh, all these people in the town, they're like, isn't that, isn't that Naomi? And, and she's like, remember what she said? She said, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me by a name that better reflects my heart and my heart is bitter, call me Mara. But now in chapter three, she's back in fellowship with God. 
There's typically three kinds of people, those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who have no idea what's happening. Naomi's number one, she makes things happen. She knows Boaz is interested in Ruth because Ruth has come and said as much to her. And here's something we can take away from Naomi's approach to life. It's okay to be practical and it's okay to make plans. Some have asked, if God is in control, then why should I make plans at all? Or others will say, I'm just praying about it. And they just pray about it and they just pray about it and they just pray about it and they never do anything. What do we see from Naomi? It's okay to make plans. But the key to our plans is flexibility. How flexible are you with the plans that you make? We must be flexible because all we know is what we see. We have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes. And where we get in trouble is when we insist on our plans, where we, you know, our plans have to work. We have to do it this way. You have certainly heard the phrase, if you wanna make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? Blessed is the flexible, for they shall not be broken. So Naomi gives her some practical advice and then she goes on to say this, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And then verse four, when he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. This is really strange to us. Like when we read this, like this is really strange. How strange it must have been for Ruth as a foreigner too. She, was, she didn't know any of this. But Ruth trusted Naomi, her mother-in-law, because she was a woman of integrity. So she did exactly as her mother-in-law instructed. But Ruth didn't miss a beat. All that you tell me to do, Naomi, I will do. I think there's, there's another life lesson here. Even though Ruth may have thought that Naomi's advice was odd, she followed her advice because she knew Naomi was kind and she was trustworthy and she had her best in mind. So it's a great reminder to all of us that we have people in our lives who are ahead of us in age and who are ahead of us in life experience who have our best in mind. And, and it's this willingness to be willing to listen to advice from those who are older and wiser. Imagine Ruth's life had she said to herself, I like my mother-in-law, but she's old and she's out of touch. I know better than her, even though I don't have as much experience. I think that there's a takeaway there for us. Secondly, in God's providence, step out in faith. And now trust God's plan. Verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman laying at his feet. So after the harvest was done and the winnowing process was finished, they would have this, this huge feast uh, in celebration. There would be these large piles of barley and wheat. And as I described earlier, the servants would go out and lay around this pile. So why, 
this strange instruction from Naomi. Because when someone is sleeping, and you know this, right? Even in your own bed, and, and you pull the blanket back off of your feet, eventually when you kind of resurface out of REM sleep, you kind of wake up and go, my feet are cold. And that's, that was the whole purpose of this. And the hope was that Boaz would wake up, look down, and see Ruth laying there. And it would spark this conversation. And the other reason to lay at his feet in this culture was it was this act of submission. So Boaz, after he was startled, says, verse nine, who are you? He asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Here's what's happening. She was proposing to him in marriage. In the 70s, um, and this went on in the 80s too, there was this popular dance called the Sadie Hawkins dance. It, it, you know, kind of think of it like in the sense where the, the women would invite or the gals would invite the guys to a dance. It was kind of this counterculture. Reliant K, if you remember that band, sang a song uh, entitled that. So she was simply saying to Boaz, I'm a widow, take me as your wife. Ruth was proposing marriage. Spread the corner of your garment over me, meaning offer me future provision and protection. We still use this metaphor today, take someone under your wing. It's a very similar metaphor. And so as much as what Ruth was doing seems non-traditional to us, usually we think of the man proposing to the woman, her request was based upon a law. And it was the law of leveret marriage. The law says, if you had a husband and he died, that husband's brother would take you as his wife so you could have a son in honor to carry on the family name. It's found in Deuteronomy 25.5. And let me just read that. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. So why was this so important? Because it would keep everything within the family. It would keep everything together. I want you to play this out for a second. Imagine a family with four brothers. One of the brothers comes to the other three and says, hey, guess what? I'm getting married. I've met the one. What do you suppose the other brothers might do? Uh, hold the phone. You're not getting married until we have a chance to see her and get to know her. Because look, if you kick the bucket, one of us has to take her. We get a vote in this. Other reasons that this was important was to protect the woman and to protect the family land. That was all part of what was happening here. So as I mentioned earlier, as in the case of Ruth, her dead husband had no living brothers. So Boaz was her possible kinsman redeemer. Though Ruth had some rights and expectations with her relationship with Boaz, she didn't come to him demanding, she didn't come to him claiming, she came to him as a humble servant trusting in the goodness of her kinsman redeemer. Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So, so Boaz had the right to force himself upon Ruth as her kinsman redeemer, but he did not. Rather than, than claiming his right, to have her, he was kind enough to not force himself as her kinsman redeemer unless she desired it. 
I think one of the things that I jotted this off to the side after I wrote this message and it reminds us that the sovereignty of God says that he can, but it doesn't say that he will. Most guess Boaz to be 45, 50 years old. So that's why he said, you could have gone after any of these younger men, but you base your pursuit of me not on appearance, not on image, but out of respect. So Boaz also draws attention to her as a person. This kindness that you're showing is greater than the kindness that you showed before. Simply to say this, her consistent character spoke louder than her words. So I think Ruth's ability to lean on her character and for Boaz to recognize her character is this another great reminder for us. In life, when things are going great, our character is really easy. But it's when things get tough and things are hard that our character is put to the test, especially when we have been attacked or accused of something. It's then when we want to use our mouth to defend ourselves. And because we're human, my guess is that every single person in this room and everyone who's listening online can at least think of one time when you allowed your mouth to defend you. A consistent character will always trump a busy mouth. Our character will always speak louder than words. Let your character do your talking. So Boaz took notice of Ruth's consistent character, verse 11, and now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And, and so this, this language that he's using to describe her literally meant you are a woman of moral strength, good quality, integrity, and virtue. That's what he was saying about her. She was being described literally as a Proverbs 31 woman. Your character precedes you. Verse 12, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So lie here until the morning. So Boaz is announcing that though he is willing to be this kinsman redeemer, there is another relative that's actually closer. So Boaz could not exercise his right as her kinsman redeemer unless this closer relative decides that he doesn't want to. So another display of Boaz's character, unwilling to be shady, he wanted to do God's will and he wanted to do it God's way. So he knew that if it was truly of the Lord, then it could be done orderly and in a proper way and in God's time. Thirdly, in God's providence, step out in faith, trust God's plan, and here's the third one, recognize God's provision, starting in verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the, the bundle on her. Then he went back to the town. 
Again, I think some have speculated, but again, there's nothing scandalous happening here. Just that Boaz didn't want uh, the closer relative to learn that, that Ruth was demanding her right to be married to Boaz before he had a chance to have his say. So he was not willing to send Ruth home empty handed Look at verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So Ruth, was now in a period of waiting for God's provision. Who would be her kinsman redeemer? Boaz or would it be this closer relative? Boaz had a reputation of keeping his word and Naomi emphasized it by saying, he will not rest until it's settled. Like Ruth, even after we've stepped out in faith, even after we've trusted God's plan, we learn to recognize God's provision, which sometimes his provision is to wait. God's provision isn't always what we want it to be, but it's always what he wants it to be. And so like Ruth at the end of chapter three, there are times when God provides by saying, wait. There are times when God says, as Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. There are times when he says, I know that you're looking at your life, this horizontal life, and you're seeing all the chaos. You're seeing all the hard things, all the trials, all the hardships, all the confusing things, the senseless things. And I know that everything in you is screaming and he says, stop fighting, stop striving. Just acknowledge me as your providential God and sit in awe. There are times when God says, I want you to rest in holy ambition. An ambition that is holy because though the motivation is to see God magnified, the timing is not yet. May Ruth's story be an encouragement to all of us to step out in faith, to trust God's plan and to recognize God's provision. Let me leave you with this one thing. Again, the word providence is to see beforehand. God sees things before they happen. Trust God's providence by learning to live in the tension of your horizontal life. Those hardships and trials and chaos and senseless acts and unconnected events. Learn to live in that tension and your vertical life, which is God's providence. Knowing God not only sees beforehand, but that he acts beforehand. God, thank you for uh, your word and thank you for this amazing book in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And as it gets revealed little by little, um, I think all of us can, can see ourselves in this story. But the beauty is that we get to see the whole story and we get to see your providential hand. 
And Lord, we know that if we live just for today and all we look at is what's happening next or what's happening around us in this horizontal life, there's a chance we'll miss it. Help us to take the time on occasion to look back and to celebrate and to worship you because of your providence. And we can see your fingerprints and how you connected the dots. And it gives us even more reason to worship and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.